Let's go ahead and get started, please. While you're all finding a seat, let me thank Dr. Hand for his uh, excellent teaching on lessons we can learn from the lesser kings. And I enjoyed it tremendously. So now we move on. We're still in the Old Testament. Uh, What am I doing the next five months? Well, we're continuing our study of the message and biblical theology of the Pentateuch. I'll bet you didn't know, maybe, that that's what we were doing. But we started with Genesis, and then the next thing we did was we covered Exodus, and now we are beginning Leviticus. How many of you have ever sat through Sunday school where the goal has been to do the biblical theology of the Pentateuch? Raise your hand. Seeing nobody, I'm going to conclude that this is new to most of you. (laughs) Why are we doing this? Well, that's what I'm going to talk about this morning. We're going to set the stage for the message of Leviticus. Are you curious as to what that is? Let's look at it right up front. Holiness is essential for being in God's presence. All right. You know, as New Testament believers, we have greater promises of the presence of the Holy Spirit and being, we're not just in God's presence, He's in us. How much more important is it that we display holiness in our lives than it was for the Israelites? I think probably some of you have looked at your Bible reading schedule and you've concluded, oh, the next book I have to read is Leviticus. That's my favorite book of the Bible. (laughs) Now, you're saying to yourself, why do I have to read about all those sacrifices? How in the world does anything related to the laws of cleanness and uncleanness apply to me? Is there any value in this book? Isn't it something, what we think about with certain books of the Bible? I've thought those things, shame on me. How dare I think thoughts like that? Actually, We see in in the Pentateuch, in the way Moses, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, structures the Pentateuch. He starts off Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, in the way oftentimes ancient authors structured their material, the book that's in the middle is the theological center of the whole Pentateuch. And that's what we have here. Leviticus is the theological center of the Pentateuch. We'll talk about why. We'll talk about lots of things that I hope will be a blessing to you. Uh, They've 
they've been a challenge to me, and uh, I'm looking forward to our study for the next five months. All right, now let's talk about a reminder, or for those of you who are new to the class, this is more than a reminder, it's instruction on the nature of biblical theology. All right, so what does biblical theology contrast with? What's the other kind of theology that we often study? Contrasting with biblical theology is systematic theology. Systematic theology is necessary. Biblical theology is necessary. I would argue that systematic theology ought to be based on biblical theology. Why is that? Well, I'll explain why that is. And, uh, ooh, that's kind of hard to see. Anyway, here we go. Biblical theology relies or uses inductive reasoning. This is in contrast to deductive reasoning. Now, when I was an undergrad student, I was a chemical engineering major, and I took lots of science and math and engineering classes in my undergrad career. And I was taught to think inductively. When you think that way, you're presented with a group, with a group of data, and your task is to analyze the data and then to come to a conclusion about it. That's the scientific method. And so I got to seminary when the Lord called me to full-time Christian service, and I was in class with a bunch of people, mostly, a lot of them, had been going to Christian school since they were in kindergarten. I, on the other hand, had never had a Bible class in my entire life. Okay, here I am. I know the Lord's called me to the ministry in some way, and I am now in competition with these guys who have had Bible classes since they could hardly walk. And when I took systematic theology, they had a pretty big advantage on me. They'd already learned all these doctrines. And I was having to go through uh, Charles Hodge, Systematic Theology, three volumes, and I was struggling. I'd get to the tests, and first test, I think I got a C- minus on it or something like that. I thought, C-, minus, that's not good. Uh, so I got to, got to one of the guys, together with one of the guys who was in this category of he had been studying systematic theology since he was a kid. And I said, okay, tell me, how do you study systematic theology? It uses deductive reasoning. You start with a premise that such and such is true, and then you go throughout the scripture, no matter where it is, no matter what the chronological development is, no matter what the history of God's revelation chronologically is, just you go anywhere in the Bible and you look for proof texts that would indicate that that's a true 
deductive statement. Different way of thinking. I think by the end of this semester, I finally had a B-plus in systematic theology, but I thought, man, I'm not sure I like this. I called it the arguing class. We had one guy in class. He was a rock-ribbed Arminian. And another guy in class was a staunch Calvinist. And sometimes Dr. Bell would stand up there and we would be talking about a particular uh, systematic view and he would let these guys argue with each other. I'm sitting there, I'm going, I don't like this. I don't like arguing. I don't like it when you come to the end and there's no definite inductive proof of what you're saying. You're both, you're both got Bible on your side and you're both arguing like the other guy's all wet. Well, you know, that just didn't appeal to me. But then I got in some, some biblical theology classes in the Old Testament. Now, folks, I was raised when I first, first got into, um, you know, in, into Bible-believing churches. I grew up in a liberal church. But when I got to a Bible-believing church, uh, the pastors were all very staunch uh, dispensationalists. And uh, dispensationalism is a systematic theology position. And they, I was, as a matter of fact, one of the pastors that I had was very close to being a, a, such an enthusiastic dispensationalist that you would call him a hyper-dispensationalist, almost, not quite. But I never heard any preaching from the Old Testament much. Every once in a while, a little some Old Testament sneaked in there. But uh, so all of a sudden, I was exposed to a methodology of studying the Scripture that was inductive. Start with the data, analyze the data, come to conclusions about the data, and I was thrilled. All right, this is, this is where, you know, I'm used to thinking this way. And uh, that's, that's the very foundation of biblical theology. What does the Bible say? I'm not going to come to the Bible and with an idea, I know what it says. No, it's going to teach me with its explicit statements and I'm going to analyze those statements. Ah, yes, analysis. What does analysis do? It looks at data, and it very carefully examines the data through various means, and that's the, the next thing coming on the, 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 the little uh, PowerPoint here. I'm going to study it carefully using what we call grammatical historical uh, exegesis, and I'm going to, as a result of my study, ask myself, okay, what are the interrelationships between this data? It, what does this teach me about what the Bible is saying? And I'm going to eventually come to a conclusion about it, a conclusion that is 
basically what any careful investigator would come to. In other words, when we study science, uh, we come up with various conclusions about data. We come up with things like Boyle's Law, or we come up with uh, certain uh, statements, equations, if you will, about what happens when things are in motion. And we, we study Newtonian physics, and we don't wonder if acceleration equals one-half at squared. We don't debate that. Why is that? Because we've done lots and lots of experiences, experiments. And after every single experiment, it confirms that acceleration due to gravity is equal one-half at squared. Nobody, nobody I know debates these kinds of things. And what I would argue is if we would study the Bible in using the methodology of, of uh, biblical theology, then we all ought to come to about the same conclusion that the Scripture teaches. As a matter of fact, one time, a long time ago, I was teaching the book of Exodus. And I challenged people in class to study the book of Exodus with biblical theological methodology. And there was a lady in class, her husband was studying the Master of Divinity degree at Bob Jones, and, and she was a homemaker, she had taken good care of her kids at home, but she took my challenge about studying the book of Exodus from a biblical standpoint, biblical theology standpoint, and after a couple of months of this, one day after we, you know, had set the stage and everything, I asked, did anybody uh, study the book of Exodus? And you have an idea what the theme of the book is. This lady raises her hand. Yes, ma'am. And she stated a theme of the book of Exodus that was almost precisely what I had come up with as I was doing it. And I thought to myself, this, this lady is not a trained theologian, and yet look at what is going on here. She, because she's paying attention to what the scripture actually says, and she's using inductive reasoning, whether she knows what to call it or not, she comes up with just almost exactly what I came up with for the theme of Exodus. Amazing. Yes, and that's the way it ought to work. Biblical theology is founded on exegesis, which is drawing meaning out of the biblical text. It's essentially the way we interpret any human communication. As long as we all know English, when I make a statement, you don't probably think to yourself, I wonder what he really means by that statement. It's raining outside, and it's cloudy. Did you wonder? I wonder if he means it's sunny and bright out today. No. 
I only meant one thing. It's raining and it's cloudy. Okay? (laughs) Because normal human communication is automatically interpreted uh, by English-speaking people. Now, if I speak in French, uh, you know, il pleut aujourd'hui. Now, maybe you know what I just said. Uh, I'm ra- it's raining today. But if you don't know French, then you're sunk. All right, so that, that presents a problem to us because when we study the Bible, um, well, it was written, it, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and Aramaic, a few chapters, and we don't know that language. But we have English versions. Oh, very, very highly trained people who do know Hebrew all got together and they decided, let's do a translation. And so they, they have certain translation philosophies and they, they do a translation in English. Ah, now, do you realize how blessed we are? What's Joel Wagner doing? Well, he's doing translation work because certain language groups in Myanmar don't have the Bible in their language. As a matter of fact, hundreds of language group people in the world don't have the Bible in their native language. We are blessed beyond measure. We have commentary literature on the Bible. Highly trained interpreters have looked at the the books of the Bible. You can't name one book of the Bible that doesn't have an English language commentary written about it. That's true for Leviticus, too. I'll be talking about certain books that you can buy. Bring up Amazon if you choose. You know, select, I want to buy that book. Boy, it's really easy. All you do is click buy now. Pretty soon, a couple days, you've got that commentary on Leviticus. You know, you look at that and you say, oh, ho-hum, you know, that's, that's just the way it is. We are blessed beyond all measure. We have multiple versions. We have multiple commentaries. We are very blessed. And, and so <clears throat> exegesis consists of several things. Word meaning, for instance. Uh, syntax, which is the grammatical association of words together in a complete sentence in the scripture. Uh, we, you know, when you're looking at exegesis, you're looking at, at things like, well, what are the cultural differences between the biblical author and me today? I don't live in the desert. I haven't just recently been a slave. My, my country's been a slave class people for over 400 years. I don't live in detent, thankfully. Uh, I have never seen the glory of God 
come down on a mountain and the, the ground around me shakes violently and there's thunder and lightning and I hear a voice coming from the mountaintop and I'm scared senseless. I've never been through that. So I'm not an Israelite. How should we understand uh, a specific verse in Exodus that was given to people at, you know, camped at Mount Sinai? And basically what we're going to say here is the book of Leviticus is given to people who are camped at Mount Sinai. They have already told Moses... We don't want to hear God's voice directly anymore. We don't want to see his glory anymore. We're scared senseless. You go and be our representative before God up on the mountain, and then he'll tell you what we need to hear, and then you come down and tell us, but don't let God speak to us directly anymore. We're sinful people. We can't bear that, that experience. We're afraid we're going to get incinerated just by virtue of being sinners. All right, so exegesis always takes into account the the cultural differences between the original, uh, the message to the original audience and the the message to today. There's a lot of things that go into exegesis, and uh, that's what I've been trained to do. I'm a trained exegete in the Old Testament. Uh, I put in my eight years in seminary. Yes, eight years. You say, are you serious? You went to seminary for eight years? Yep, sure did. And I could have gone another 800 years and I wouldn't know uh, all I need to know to be an infallible interpreter of the Bible, which I'm not. Okay, one of the main methodologies of biblical theology is what we call the book study. That's what we've been doing, whether you know it or not. That's what we've been doing when we studied Genesis and when we studied Exodus. And that's how we're going to approach the book of Leviticus. So when you do a book study, you start out by reading the book over and over again, as many times as you have time to read it. A good number to pick is a dozen times. Okay? Let me challenge you. Over the next few weeks, I challenge you to read the book of Leviticus a dozen times. And, if possible, all in one sitting. Okay, so you, you, you're going for the macroscopic view. That's biblical theology. It's looking for the bird's eye view of what we're studying. Uh, this is the way we operate normally in human life. I'll never forget the first time I flew over the hunting property that I've, I've been hunting for 28 years. Uh, I joined this hunting club, and 
I, would, I had never gotten the bird's eye view before. And then our youngest son, Mark, got his pilot's license. And he said, Dad, you want to go for a ride, uh, a plane ride? And I said, you bet, let's go. And he said, where do you want to go? I said, I want to fly over our, our hunting property. Whoa, that was a real eye-opening experience. I thought, look at that. Look how close that stand is to that stand over there. I thought they were miles apart. They're only a few hundred yards apart. I got a view of the lay of the land. I got a good view of where the pines are and where the hardwoods are. It was just eye-opening, the bird's eye view. That's what we're seeking to do in biblical theology. Before we start looking at the individual uh, nitpicky, important details. Yes, they're important. But if we don't have the bird's eye view, we can't incorporate those minuscule facts into the whole. And we get a kind of myopic view of the Bible, as if it's just little teeny pieces of information, all kind of just together. And, and, and we we are a little bit like people who are going to go turkey hunting and they're patterning their shotgun to see if they're going to get the turkey when they pull the trigger. So you put up a, a turkey target and you get back, say, 40 yards away, and you load your, your turkey load in your 12-gauge shotgun and you're about to get belted a good one in the shoulder because when you pull the trigger, all that heavy shot is going out of the barrel and you have an equal and opposite reaction, which is it pounds your shoulder like it got kicked by a mule. Okay, so boom! And then you look at your turkey target, and there's dozens of holes, little holes in your turkey target. Is there any relationship between them? It's kind of just a random distribution of pellets hitting the target. And for a lot of people... That's their view of the Bible. They don't have a macroscopic view. It's just sort of, you know, a random distribution of facts. Now, we're trying to get around that. We're trying to make it so that Bible-believing people understand what the relationship is between various facts about, say, the book of Leviticus, We'll start off with an overall macroscopic view, which is holiness is essential for being in God's presence. And then we'll see about how individual statements in the book of Leviticus all go together to develop that theme. All right, any questions about that at this point? What I'm going to challenge you to do is, if you can come up with another theme that you feel fits the data of Leviticus better than the theme I came up with, I want to hear about it. Let me know. All right. Biblical theology, as I'm arguing, starts with a macroscopic view before zooming into microscopic examination of certain small aspects of the book. Of course, the Bible doesn't say anything that's unimportant. 
or that's trivial. But what I'm arguing is, if you want to be able to integrate specific statements of the scripture into a a whole matrix of themes, by the end of your life, you ought to be able pretty much, when you turn to any book of the Bible, you ought to be able to say, oh, I know what that book of the Bible is all about. I know the theme. I know how these various biblical books develop these themes. Uh, and, And I know God's purpose and plan for the scripture as a whole. Would you like to be able to get to that point in your life? Well, sure you would. And when you get to glory, then the Lord will set you all straight, and me too, about things you never thought about. Oh, I never saw the relation between that truth and this truth. Now I understand it. All right, now we have, as I say, many different books that the Lord has graciously provided us that give us, um, help us along with our view of biblical theology. And one of them you are looking at right here. Who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? A biblical theology of the book of Leviticus. When I stumbled upon that title, I thought, oh, this is wonderful. I mean, this is... This is amazing. Look at the Lord has worked in Michael Morales's heart to produce a book like this. Okay, Michael Morales teaches here in Greenville. Uh, uh, over in Taylor's, there's a very conservative Presbyterian seminary, and Morales teaches there. And uh, so I thought, well, good. This is even written by a conservative, theological conservative. This is wonderful. One of the first things he starts off doing in his study of the book of Leviticus, he takes the first hundred pages and he shows the way the biblical theology of Genesis and Exodus prepare for the biblical theology of Leviticus. And you know what I found? Generally speaking, he takes the same view of Genesis and Exodus that I take, further convincing me that if you study the Bible this way, inductively, you're going to come up with more or less the same conclusion as every other Bible-believing person. Pretty close. All right, let's talk about the theological development of of Genesis. Once again, what we're doing here is we are doing review. So if you haven't been in the class before, uh, this is what we've been doing for the last how many years? I don't know. I've lost track. (laughs) Of course, we had two years of COVID in there. That didn't help. But we've been doing this a while, that's for sure. All right. Genesis 1 through 11 show us that God is sovereign over what he created. He made just one rule for mankind. He's the one who's sovereign. He has the right to make the rules. 
because what I create, I have the right to control. Never will forget, one time I, uh, we went to, uh, to Fort Ticonderoga, and I bought a little bronze cannon. I don't know, it was probably about a 150th model of the kind they used to shoot at Fort Ticonderoga. And being the, the clever person that I am, I decided to take one of my dad's drill bits and, and drill a, a, a hole down, a touch hole, at, at the breech end of the barrel. Because they sold this cannon, but you couldn't shoot it. Now, what good is a cannon that you can't shoot? All right, so I drilled a touch hole down into the bore. <clears throat> and then I thought, well, I don't have any gunpowder. I did have BBs, because I had a BB gun, but I didn't have gunpowder. I know, I've got caps. I've got a cap gun. I'll start scraping gunpowder out of the out of the caps. That's a rather tedious process. And uh, so I, I got enough gunpowder to make a shot of the cannon. And then we had to decide, well, what are we going to shoot at? And my next door neighbor, Steve, had just completed a World War II destroyer model made out of plastic. You know, the Ravel kind you buy at the store and you put it together and then you carefully paint the turrets and you put on all the decals, takes you hours and hours. Well, that's what he had done. He said, we'll use my ship model as a target. I said, this is not going to turn out well for your, tr for your ship model. Are you sure you want to do that? And he said, I made it. If I want to blow it up, that's my determination. I couldn't argue with that. So we got a big uh, galvanized tub that Steve's mother used for gardening, and we put it, we filled it up with water, and we set the destroyer model, uh, a sa you know, sailing on the ocean blue there. And then we took a, a box, and we put the cannon up there, and we got a, a fuse from a firecracker. We stuck it down the touch hole. We loaded it all up, and we lit it, and we stood back. Good thing we stood back, because when that thing went off, it flipped the cannon back about 30 feet. If we'd been in the way, it would have hurt. And the water gets sprayed up, and, and once the smoke clears, we look, and that ship model uh, was blown to smithereens. And of his end of his ship model. And you know what? He was just ecstatically excited. Look at that! Look at that! Wow! That's so cool! It just destroyed what he spent hours building. But it was his call. He made it. He could blow it up if he wanted to. <laughs> uh, of course, this is... <clears throat> because... <clears throat> excuse me. Because the Lord is sovereign... He can make the rules. And here's the one rule. Okay, one rule. You must not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then he went further. Because in the day you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. So, what's the first thing 
Adam and Eve do? Well, they listen to the serpent. The serpent lies. Well, they, they didn't even, they couldn't conceive of a lie. All, they were made in the image of God. And the image of God is not a lying image. God always tells the truth. Adam and Eve never thought of, of a lie. They couldn't conceive of somebody who told lies. But the way they could have spotted the lie was to compare what the devil said to what God had said. When the devil said, oh, you will not surely die, they should have said, oh, yes, we will. God told us we would. You're a liar if you're going against what God said. No, unfortunately, they didn't do that. And then mankind's fall from holiness meant that they were separated from God. Remember how in the Garden of Eden they had walked with the Lord in the cool of the day? Can you imagine walking with God himself in the Garden of Eden, fellowshipping with him face to face, learning from him, enjoying his presence, loving your creator? And now... God kicks them out of the garden, and that's where we'll start next week. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for your word, for the instruction of it. We pray that you will help us to study it as you have intended, seriously, methodologically, and most of all, dependent on your Holy Spirit to instruct us how we should live so that we would draw close to you and enjoy your presence and marvel at the great salvation you have provided. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.